Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Mark Doyle to discuss the kinks, their relationship to British culture, African-American music, and class. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Mark Doyle, author of The Kinks, Songs of the Semi-Detached. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi. And you've got to fess up to this pun that I thought was pretty clever that you titled it with. It's not genius or anything. My wife figured it out right away, but it took me a couple of days. But explain the multiple meanings behind songs with a semi-detached. Sure. In a way, it's sort of it's it's an homage to uh, to Ray Davies' uh, propensity for wordplay. Um, semi-detached is a style of house uh, that's very common in the UK. Um, it's I guess what you might call a duplex here uh, in the US. Um, you know, two uh, two living units melded together, but it, it's sort of the standard suburban uh, home style in, um, in in much of the UK. Um, so it's semi-detached in that sense because uh, Ray himself uh, spent a lot of the period covered in this book living in a semi-detached house um, and uh, writing a lot about houses um, as sort of uh, markers of, of class status. Uh, but it's also um, the way I sort of see him and the band uh, existing with regard to the British music establishment, with regard to the swing in the 60s. Uh, they were sort of there, but not there. They were kind of part of the scene, but not entirely part of the scene. So they were themselves uh, semi-detached, not wholly, but semi Thank you. Thank you. Sums it up nicely. And so another thing you, you describe in the preface was about your method and, and your goals here. And and our goals are a little different. You're say you, what you say is that you're using history and putting the kinks in their historical context to improve the appreciation of their aesthetic accomplishments. And I'm interested in putting them in their historic context for reasons I'm not quite sure why I'm doing this entire series, but but I'm interested in the historic context in which these musical events happen and which uh, and in which people like Ray and Dave Davis come to impact the culture. And so 
I think we can work out an alliance for 60 Minutes here and get at some of this historical context because you brought out several things that are unique to the kinks that, like as you say, they sort of stand outside looking on sardonically. And, and part of that, of course, is Ray Davis's infamous gap in his teeth. So he, he tried to never smile and show his teeth. So he's always smirking and has that weird posture. But there's a deeper thing, which is that they never really felt at home anywhere. And yet, unlike, say, The Who, you know, you don't get a lot of Who songs about Shepherd's Bush, and you don't get Mick Jagger and Keith Richards writing a lot of songs about Dartford or Kent. You know, they never let Brian Jones write a song about Cheltenham. Um, and yet the Kinks constantly go back to Muswell Hill, which is the neighborhood next door to the one they grew up in, and I guess has a more um, sexy title than uh, Fortis Green, which is located between Muswell Hill and each fence, each East Finchley. Why do you think it was that day that Ray was so drawn back to writing about the place he grew up and the people he grew up amongst? What was it about that world that was so unique and special to him that he felt he had to communicate it? I don't know. You know, you're right. They, um, you can do this sort of um, writing about the the way that this band is responding to their context. You can do that a lot better with the Kinks than with a lot of other bands because they are um, making kind of social commentary and social observations in a way that the Who, or even you know, the Beatles have maybe a couple of songs, uh, a few songs about Liverpool, but not much. Um, I think uh, Ray was there was a sense in which he was trying to figure out his own childhood, I think, as soon as he was born. Um, you know, he was born into this large working class family that uh, lived in a fairly middle class area, um, having immigrated to uh, to London, uh, to North London. I guess emigrated, migrated is probably a better word, uh, during the Blitz to escape the bombing uh, during World War II. And, um, you know, he had these six older sisters whose lives had sort of um, transfixed him and fascinated him for a very long time. Um, and uh, this working class uh, kind of enclave in um, suburban middle class North London, where they're kind of carrying on these traditions of um, working class um, partying, essentially getting around the radio and singing songs, um, having uh, kind of an open door policy where people can drop by any time, the father coming home with his work buddies uh, at the end of the day. And I think there was a sense in which maybe he never really quite felt he belonged in the more buttoned up middle class world. Um, and I, this is, uh, I think, true of, of Dave as well. They never felt they really quite belonged in the neighborhood they were growing up in, but they felt a sense of belonging to the family um, and, and somehow kind of working out that tension that uh, figuring out where you, where you came from um, has really informed, um, I think, both of their, their work for, for most of their careers. And, you know, before I read your book, I never knew that the family had moved. I'm sure I'd read through it somewhere that the family had moved from further south in London to um, what's essentially a suburb, not not way in the outer rings, but but Muswell Hill and Fortis Green are well away from Islington and Holloway. Mm -hmm. um, and that Ray's ability to evoke these vivid pictures of the Davis family singing around the piano and this, this working class milieu 
that really was dead by the time he came along or was dying. I mean, the 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 culture of the Cockneys in central London, where essentially you had villages where everybody knew everybody and people looked out for each other and people knew each other's business and, you know, had all the pluses and minuses of a pre, you know, in a pre-TV world. Then the family moves up to North London, where the Kinks, where Ray and Dave grow up and experience this. And it's kind of a, they got sort of a, the last picture show version of it, as it were, like their mom and dad singing around the piano and the last glimmers of pub culture that's rapidly dying. And um, I'd never realized that before. And I thought that was really interesting. And you also talk about one of the big formative influences on Ray which was seeing Big Bill Brunsey on TV. Um, and Bill, Big Bill Brunsey was a Chicago bluesman who had a pretty long career, but he'd sort of been displaced in the States by Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and these uh, Mississippi Delta Cats that had moved up to Chicago and, and taken the blues electric. And he was a little bit passe, but he found a second career in England. And you make an interesting case for why Big Bill Brunsey made such an impact on Ray Davis. Can you explain that? Yeah, so this is uh, around about 1958 um, at the uh, the home of um, sister Peggy and um, her husband Mike, who uh, have a television, uh, unlike a lot of other friends and family members. Um, and uh, this film called The Light and Blue Smoke, showing Big Bill Brunzi in a Belgian, a sort of romantic, smoky Belgian jazz bar, um, was aired several times around then um, and, and had an influence not only on, on Ray, but also... Um, Eric Clapton has spoken about it. Keith Richards has spoken about it. And, um, you know, there was something about right uh, right around that time, um, the late 1950s, where American music is starting to filter in to Britain, but but it's slow. You know, you've got Elvis um, and, and uh, uh, Bill Haley and others um, starting to make waves, but... Um, the access to uh, to a lot of this music was still uh, very difficult. Uh, records were expensive. Local uh, British um, r- record companies were not uh, issuing much in the way of American music, or certainly modern American music, uh, teenage American music yet. And so, um, but uh, television had just become um, a little bit more open uh, due to a certain due to a certain amount of deregulation. And so TV becomes an important kind of window onto a wider world, just as America is starting to um, to get really exciting. And so, uh, yeah, I think just uh, connecting with Black America was very important. Um, seeing this Black man um, singing songs that um, were kind of connected in sort of British imaginations with um, almost a sort of 19th century form of African-American culture. Uh, there was a certain romance to this kind of music. Um, uh, but it, it was also something that working class uh, Britons, British teenagers could identify with. They, uh, Ray has spoken of, you know, admiring the kind of the working class roughness of Big Bill's voice of uh, appreciating that he didn't try to smooth out the wrong notes and the, the rough edges of everything. And, um, and he felt, you know, a certain amount of kinship um, with that kind of 
outlook and being on the outside of the mainstream of culture um, that really uh, appealed. So yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I, I, I say in the book, if this moment, um, if he had grown up just a little bit earlier, he wouldn't have had access to um, a, a television program uh, with an American blues singer on it. If he'd grown up a little bit later, um, he would have been so awash in American culture, American TV, American music, um, that it wouldn't have made much of an influence. But it's precisely because, you know, Big Bill is, is, is sort of a rare commodity um, that uh, that he's really... Uh, uh, exciting and it's interesting you know big bill brunzi is much more well known i think in britain today than in the united states despite spending most of his career in the u.s it's really in britain that he has this kind of splash yeah it's 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 interesting and i've i've talked to elijah wald and others about some of why that is there's been sort of a revisionist rewriting of musical history started by people like brian jones who mm. elevated muddy waters and others um the chicago blues style for various reasons but for our purposes, this leads Ray and his younger brother Dave down this road, and you know, in some ways, it's a long time from the late fifties to the mid sixties. But really, it's pretty fast how quickly the Kinks come together, uh, sort of despite themselves. But they they put out this song, and let, actually, I'm going to go ahead and play our next snippet. This is not the song that broke the kinks, but this is one of a trio of songs that are arranged in the manner of You Really Got Me. This is the kinks doing I Need You, and you can hear the jagged thunderclap of David Davies' guitar on this one. I Need You by the Kinks, and you can hear the feedback that Dave Davis starts this off, and you, you you say that You Really Got Me, you describe as a jagged thunderclap of a song introducing a rough new element to the British beat movement, prefiguring punk and heavy metal, a sort of North London blues. Talk about this little, you don't dwell on this period of the Kinks, but we have to get it out there. What is it about the Savage Young Kinks that are so different than the Beatles and the Stones and, and Jerry and the Pacemakers and the others that have preceded them? You know, I think a lot of it um, is it's Dave. It's the that um, that guitar sound. Um, this continues to be, uh, even I think this week or in the past couple of weeks, this has been sort of uh, rehashed uh, in in podcast land. Um, this continues to be a, a source of controversy about who actually sliced the speaker cone um, that made that uh, that fuzzy guitar sound. Was it uh, Ray with a knitting needle? Was it uh, Dave with a razor blade? Dave insists that it was you know him with the razor blade and I, I think I'm on team team Dave with this one um, he uh, it was just it was you know it's a sound that kind of prefigured um, the rough kind of DIY sound of, of punk maybe a little bit of heavy metal and um, and there was just a sort of anger and intensity and a sense of uh, alienation that you don't really get uh, with the early Beatles that you don't get with um, the other uh, bands coming out of Liverpool uh, the Stones were you know they were sort of making American blues music which um, you know had its own kind of uh, roughness and, and sense of alienation but it wasn't it wasn't quite as uh, angry 
angry or as uh, horny as uh, as the uh, as the king. I think there was just, there was a sense in which they were capturing a moment of um, youthful um, enthusiasm uh, and but also uh, you know like I said rage. I think that Dave was a very angry uh, teenager by all accounts. There was a, a feeling that as these working class kids, uh, they were uh, contributing to the culture in a really significant way, but they still weren't quite accepted by the British establishment. They were still being kind of jerked around by the, uh, the music industry. Um, they were um, feeling uh, oppressed and sort of groomed for working in factories by the school system. Um, so, you know, it's not uh, it's not confined to music. You also see this kind of rage coming out of uh, drama and and uh, literature at the time. Um, but yeah, somehow something about that sound really captured what it sounded like, um, or what it felt like to be a teenager at that time. Another, I think good example would be, um, I'm not like everybody else, which, um, I was just uh, talking with somebody who grew up at, at that time in Britain and, you know, talked about hearing that song, uh, at, when it came out at the time and, and just feeling like it was, you know, it, almost from another planet. Like it, it was like nothing he'd ever heard before, but something that he could immediately identify with. Um, so yeah, it was less palatable maybe to, uh, to the parents, which also helped. <laughs> For sure. And you're bringing up, I'm not like everybody else, which is a little bit out of my chronology, but I want to I want to talk about it because you, you make a point about that one, that Ray was probably hip to the irony of singing a song like that, that not only invites, but virtually demands a sing-along. And the idea of Ray smirking, looking on as his brother roars, I'm not like everybody else, to a crowd of mods who are all shouting, I'm not like everybody else, back at him, um, I thought was a brilliant sort of encapsulation of their creative relationship. And, and the way Ray would sort of wind Dave up and set him loose on the world and, and stand back and watch the chaos. And one of the elements of chaos in the Kinks career is that they have this massive hit and it takes them a couple of singles. They have a couple of flop singles, but then they then they get the, the big hit with You Really Got Me. It's a hit internationally. They go to America and do this shambolic tour of America in 1965. And you really get this picture of just feral, unhousebroken kids who don't get it, you know, who who don't realize there's a game to be played. And, and the end result of that tour, and it's never explicitly been stated why the American Federation of Musicians banned them from America, but they did. And, you know, speculation includes uh, refusal to be to play until they were paid and when and even then playing a very, very long version of one song to piss off the promoter. Uh, Ray allegedly punching a senior vice president of the of the union and at a party after the Hollywood Bowl show, not signing the contract, um, not signing the union membership just for reasons of his own. Anyway, it's never the, the, the American Federations of Musicians never came out and said, this is why we banned you. They just banned the kinks. They're blocked from America for four years. And to me, like you can hear songs on Kink's Controversy, which is the last song they cut before that band, last album they cut before that band, and things like Where Have All the Good Times Gone, Until the End of the Day, which was a, one of their last hit singles in the States. And I'm not like everybody else, where 
you can kind of see Ray was writing to America. He's writing on this big canvas. He's making these big, loud rock and roll records, and he's really competing for the throne. You know, like in his autobiography, he talks about for a brief minute there, we were number two, not the Stones. The Kinks were number two to the Beatles. And But then their band and his world suddenly changes. Tell us about the song that alerted the world that we were suddenly dealing with a very different Ray Davis and a very different Kinks. So this was a well-respected man, um, mid-1965. And, uh, you know, it sort of opens with a, uh, an acoustic sound, um, and uh, which is, you know, a very different um, sound than, than they had uh, kind of announced their intentions to the world with, uh, with songs like You Really Got Me. And, um, you know, it's a character study. Um, the first of many uh, that is, um, you know, it's about a very identifiable English uh, type that, um, you know, that w would not have been at all recognizable to um, to to American audiences and um, was sort of a certain amount of, um, you know, snide, uh, not especially subtle uh, kind of cultural commentary, social commentary. Uh, that um, yeah is the first of of quite a bit of um, taking up English themes and you know I think there is something to this idea that uh, Ray has often said you know they kind of retreated into Englishness uh, as a result of the band because it was essentially stuck in in England um, and what that I think coincides with is commercial calculation that, you know, it's not going to sell or is sort of reluctantly re recognizing that they're not going to sell records in America, um, which was freeing um, the lack of commercial pressure. The, um, you know, they were still getting commercial pressure to turn out hits, uh, still getting pressure from the, the record label and so forth. But um, he felt like that, uh, you know, there was a certain... Um, uh, yeah, I guess just liberation um, as a result of this ban uh, on touring America that, you know, it, it cut both ways. It meant that they did not become a huge uh, mega stadium act in America until much later. Uh, it meant that kind of the who could swoop in on their coattails and, and claim that role as sort of the third in the uh, the triumvirate of the Beatles and Stones. And, and the third place person. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that I talk about other elements that feed into the artistic shift that happens in 65. Um, Dylan's songs are starting to uh, suggest new possibilities for what rock music could do. Um, Phil Spector's songs are starting to suggest new possibilities for what rock music could sound like. Um, and uh, I think by this time, even though it's only a couple of years, or really even maybe just a year and a half, uh, the rock style hedonism, uh, the rock and roll lifestyle hedonism uh, that the Kings have been living is starting to to wear on Ray. So he may be kind of revolting against his own success to a certain extent. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of A Well-Respected Man by the Kinks, September 1965. Gets the same train every time Cause his world is built on punctuality It never fails And he's all so good And he's all so fine And he's all so healthy In his body and his mind He's a well-respected man about 
And that was a well-respected man from the Quiet Kinks EP from September 65. And it doesn't take Ray long. This opening salvo is a sort of predictable shot against the upper classes or the striving upper middle classes. It doesn't take Ray long to turn his sights to the scenesters, to people like himself and Dave. And tell us about a dedicated follower of fashion and the genesis of that song. Well, according to Ray, it started with a, a fight he got into, I think at a party at his own house, when um, it was a journalist, he hated parties at his own house, even more than he hated parties at other people's houses. Um, I think it was a journalist or a critic who, um, who somehow criticized his uh, clothing choices for the party. And... Um, you know, according to later, uh, his own later accounts, the uh, the critic emerges with a, a bloody nose. And um, and so he sits down immediately and starts writing the song, which is sort of targeting this uh, this hip London scenester. Uh, that I think probably the earlier iterations were more angry than uh, than the final product. Final product is kind of, uh, you know, it's mocking, but it's gentle. Um, and can also be seen as a critique of his own brother, who you know was very much into the fashion and the the fancy hats and the the um, the frilly the, nylon panties right up tight. Right. <laughs> that was uh, supposedly Pete Pete Quaife, the, oh. the uh, was the one with the <laughs> the underwear. But yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's poking fun at um, at his own bandmates, but also at himself. You know, he was uh, if you look at photos of Ray in 1966, 67, um, you know, he's quite, uh, uh fashionable uh his shirts are, are really uh kind of gorgeous his hats and you know it, it's all um he's playing along to a certain extent and i think enjoying um the fashion scene but uh yeah he's uh he's poking fun and dandy is another example of that a song from that period that is poking fun almost explicitly at his brother uh, and his brother's uh, kind of lothario like lifestyle even though it's supposedly also inspired by uh the michael Caine movie be healthy and there's another character we haven't brought up yet and she's kind of mysterious because she to my knowledge has never spoken to the press about her role but i'm talking about ray's first wife raza uh, and correct me if i'm mispronouncing that but she actually sang backup on almost all of their peak period records from the very beginning and so she's this big force in his life and she's a baltic girl her family immigrated I want to say Lithuania. Yeah. Um, and he marries her and moves into a house, but just a few doors down or a few blocks away from his parents' house. Tell us about that move and, and how it impacted Ray and why he didn't move further away. Yeah, Raza, she is kind of a, a shadowy character. She did sit down for an interview with Johnny Rogan, who wrote kind of the big definitive Ray Davies um, biography. Uh, maybe a decade or two ago. Yes. I should have known. I should have known those tomes are so intimidating. I haven't got them to him yet. And Rogan sadly passed away, so I won't get to speak to him. But uh, I'm glad somebody got to her. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, but apart from that, she kind of has stayed away from the press. Uh, yeah, sure. Her her vocals, actually, um, if you know that it's his wife and that they're sort of living a life of semi-bliss, uh, uh, certainly uh, domestic life in um, 
just a few doors, well, a, a few minutes walk from the house that he grew up in. It adds an, a certain, uh, I don't know, very poignant dimension to songs like Waterloo Sunset, where she's singing along uh, with um, Dave and I think Pete on the, the backup vocals. Um, yeah, they, they settle down in 65. They buy this house um, that is a, about a two-minute walk from the small, much smaller house, uh, much more proletarian house that um, that Ray and Dave grew up in. Uh, on Fortis Green, they um, it's a semi-detached house. He lives there um, off and on for for quite a few years, and um, you know they have a child fairly quickly. And so I think there's this sort of pull toward the domestic life that happens uh, at the same time as the stylistic shift in, in mid '65. Uh, you know he's feeling a little bit more. Um, uh, I don't know, less inclined to, uh, as I was saying, kind of live the rock and roll lifestyle. Um, beyond that, uh, I know she she told Rogan that uh, she, she was not crazy about living so close to the family, although this is what you did in working class London. You know, you all of nearly all of Ray's sisters, Ray and Dave's sisters live uh, quite close to the family at one time or another with their own families. And you kind of made the rounds on the weekends of the various families. You walked from place to place. Or you took a bus. Um, and so, uh, you know, she complained about, um, having the, the parents kind of always interfering and always coming around, um, because that was kind of not the world that she came from, but it was very normal for a working class family to be all up in one another's business all the time. And another way they break from their peers in this period is Ray's not just through songs like dedicated follower of fashion, but he's pretty outspoken from that time to now, you know, railing against the myth of swinging London. He was one of the first to see, it seems, that even though there was a lot of media attention around working class people like the Beatles or like David Bailey, the photographer, or uh, Terrence Stamp, the actor, making this big splash, Michael Caine, another one, making these this big splash in London. But Ray seems to have caught on quickly that it wasn't truly an invitation to the ruling classes. And, you know, even though people like Brian Jones and John Lennon are running around with the Guinness Air Tara Brown and, um, you know, partying with various dukes and counts, the kinks never engaged in that. And they're, they're pulling back. And this is another point that you made that seems obvious now that you've made it, but I hadn't caught it before, was that, you know, we, we frequently look at Ray Davis and his work in the context of English artists who are, you know, not just musicians, but writers and painters and others who are chronicling the world of England. But the kinks have a big difference and that they're very self-consciously working class. And that's why he saw through this um, faux revolution of class right there. Expand on that a little bit. Why was it that Ray was able to see through this and why was he, you know, you call this his Dickens phase. Like, tell us a little bit more about Ray Davis that is so much more novelistic than his peers. I think, you know, he, partly it's due to his family, his own family's his economic struggles, um, his sister who, uh, and her husband and son, to whom he was quite close, who, who moved to Australia because they felt like there wasn't really anything for them in England. Um, I think there's a certain extent to which they're just, they're plugged into the daily struggles of ordinary people uh, that, um, 
that a lot of other uh, bands were not. You know, it should be said that Dave Dave kind of threw himself into that uh, that swing in London scene and quite enjoyed it and partied with Brian Jones uh, and Eric Burton and others. But um, uh, Ray is, you know, it's partly just his disposition to be detached, uh, to sit back and watch things that are going on. And um, so, yeah, I think that's partly, I have this fairly extended comparison, I guess, with, with, Charles Dickens, who also came from very humble uh, beginnings and was able to see this uh, kind of self-congratulatory Victorian culture for what it was and to understand the, the plight of the poor um, and uh, but also just to sort of find the humor in it to um, be able to identify certain stock characters um, that embody specific aspects of the of the British class system um, that he then turns into specific characters in his books then um, take on sort of larger than life roles uh, you can see a similar trait in uh, in, in Ray and um, you know there are I think certain um, personality traits that Dickens and, and, and Ray share. They uh, are both, were both insomniacs, uh, both quite liked just taking long walks around London and watching people and coming up with stories about those people. Ray has spoken of being able to see a sort of musical aura around everybody that he meets, that he can kind of meet somebody and immediately come up with what their song would sound like. Um, and I think Dickens had a certain, a similar kind of um, facility. So yeah, it's partly the temperament, but partly just being plugged into this working class world. You know, I, I live in, in Nashville, which for the last decade has been kind of touted as the, uh, the it city for a while as uh, a, a, a city of, it's kind of become a party city. We've become for reasons that still are not entirely clear to me, the second most popular destination for bachelorette parties anywhere in the nation. Um, but at the same time, you know, we are facing an extreme housing shortage. We are facing crisis in our public school system. Um, you know, this the sort of, there's this glittering image of the city and then there's the kind of more grubby reality uh, that, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to um, in American cities and other cities around the world these days. And, and a similar things going on in London. That's just sort of uh, what Ray is um, because he's, you know, temperamentally not uh, terribly prone to just throwing himself enthusiastically into any scene. He's able to sit back and just kind of watch what's happening and sometimes get into it and sometimes say, well, this is actually all just kind of um, a lie or a fraud, as he said about the 60s. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to bring up a literal ghost in the story that I probably should have brought up earlier. Yeah, so I'm teasing a ghost, and I'm talking about Ray's older sister, Renee. I think she was the oldest of his sisters. And she is another working class figure. And she gave him his first guitar on his 13th birthday and then legendarily went out dancing. And this is the subject of the song, Come Dancing, and dies in the arms of a stranger on the dance floor from a heart condition she didn't know she had. And I'm bringing her in because you talk a lot about Ray's attention. A number of his songs in this period, not only are they unique because they talk about British families, but he also has much more interest in women and their relationship to London and and wealthy men and country houses and the other themes. Do you ever feel like Renee was sort of the reason that he, A, wrote about his family and where he came from so much, and B, was so sympathetic to women in his writing? 
Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Uh, I talk in the book about um, three songs, uh, Starstruck, uh, Polly, and uh, Big Black Smoke is all uh, chronicling these uh, tales of women uh, kind of going into the city and being seduced by the the lights and the men and the the excitement and uh, being ruined by it. You know, I'm sure there wasn't anything conscious going on um, connecting his, uh, his sister's death to um, the sort of ruination of these women in, in those particular songs. Um, but I, yeah, it was probably there in a way. And of course, the later song uh, on Muswell Hillbilly's Oklahoma, USA was, um, he has said, directly inspired by his, uh, his sister and uh, imagining her as a young person um, listening to the, um, the soundtrack of, of the Rodgers and Hammerstein um, uh, musical uh, Oklahoma and imagining another world just as he had also kind of had these fantasies about America. So um, it's definitely, I think I, I call it the foundational grief in his life. And it's it's a big reason why um, the connection between her death and receiving a guitar, I think is a big reason why he kind of turns to music. It's a way to process um and and grieve uh and um yeah and it's there right up through you know songs like come dancing in the 80s uh it's it's um uh in a way you could i don't want to i can't peer into his head so i can't say for sure but there is a narrative you could construct about the entirety of his uh, songwriting life and you know maybe dave's as well as being a way to sort of uh grieve or um pay tribute to to their dead sister and so the next sort of set of songs that that ray comes along with um is a set that i think maybe has a key to the levels of irony and who is he making fun of and who is he sympathizing with that really confused a lot of people in the 60s that that initially i think people just assumed he was viciously attacking the well-respected man and he probably was and people were fine with that and then they enjoyed turning it against the hipsters uh, and dedicated follower of fashion but then there's a series of songs Sunny afternoon about a, a wealthy man who's, you know, complaining about the tax man. Um, Waterloo sunset, which is this sort of poignant farewell. It's unclear exactly what the story is, but there's two lovers and and a sunset from Waterloo sunset. A song on the same album, Two Sisters, where um, a housewife is sort of lamenting and and singing her jealousy of her younger sister who's out partying. And it's so obviously Ray singing about Dave and himself, you know, Mm -hmm. but in the end, he comes back uh, and is glad to be at home. But by the time that Village Green and Arthur come along, it seems that people no longer see that gentleness or that he's actually rooting and sympathetic for a lot of the people he's talking about. Why do you think he, it was that, you know, Village Green Preservation Society is, it's my favorite album. It's generally considered the, the pinnacle of, of Ray Davis's accomplishment. Why do you think he lost his audience in that period? Um, partly it's just kind of boring, you know, record company reasons. They failed to promote the album very well. Um, partly it was timing. Uh, it comes out at uh, the same time as uh, the White Album and Beggar's Banquet. I think on the same day as both of those. Um, I think the same day as the White Album and soon after Beggar's Banquet. Right. Um, so, you know, it's just sort of swamped by this, these other um 
much bigger bands uh, that are they're putting out uh, really kind of similar work. Um, and then partly, yeah, I think, you know, it was so, um, it's not entirely gentle, you know, a song like, um, uh, well, uh, Big Sky maybe, or um, there's a couple of other ones on the album that uh, are, you know, kind of menacing or, or louder or uh, grandiose. So, you know, it's not entirely just sort of gently strummed guitars, but um, it was not something that uh, a lot of people who heard it and not very many people heard it um, were prepared to listen to in 1968 of all years. It was sort of really turbulent um, watershed year, a very violent year, um, especially in the United States where the Kings by this time had more or less lost their audience apart from a, a few kind of college uh, kids who, who, who were hip to them. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, it, it it was not entirely you know there's this sort of myth that it was totally uh, totally at odds with what was coming out at the time and that it was um, uh, you know swimming against the tide and I don't think that's entirely the case uh, but um, the uh, you know there are lots of kind of cultural references that were fairly. Um, hip and would have resonated with audiences, but uh, it's it, it, something about it. Just uh, a lot of people maybe weren't quite ready for it. Um, but probably the real reason is, as I say, this these sort of boring reasons that it just wasn't uh, put in the hands of enough people um, or marketed uh, as well as it could have been. Yeah, you also mentioned it was going up against Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. So now he's got a whole new generation of competition and, and yeah. you know, it was just sort of shunted to a side. But you also tease out an aspect of, of that song and that album. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of the Village Green Preservation Society. And then I'm going to ask you about something that I never thought fit. And I think you've got a good explanation for why Donald Duck is in this song. So this is the Kinks Village Green Preservation Society. Society, God save the whole duck for the bill and variety. We are the desperate and appreciation society. God save strawberry jam and all the different varieties. Serving the old ways from being abused. And that was the kinks. Village Green Preservation Society, the title song from their masterpiece album of the same name. And I can remember buying that album in a record store in Amarillo, Texas in the 80s. It was the Spanish import that was out of print. For whatever reason, we were blessed uh, with this flood of Spanish imports of these Kinks albums that had been out of print in the States for decades. It was like, you know, the gods wanted us to have um, these classic Kinks albums we were reading about in the Rolling Stone record guide. And and the rec- the lyrics are printed on the back of the album. And, you know, he's talking about Moriarty and Dracula and, and, and teacups and all this very English stuff. And then he's got Donald Duck in there. Explain why you think that's important and, and why does Donald Duck fit in to raise vision of a past, a British past that he's preserving? Yeah, it perplexed me too. Um, and, and Donald Duck shows up a lot, right? I mean, he's part yeah. of the, the, the course. Um, so I, uh, 
gave this quite a bit of thought and um and it finally occurred to me you know there's this uh, famous pop art painting by roy lichtenstein 1961 called uh, look mickey that shows donald duck and mickey mouse it's a, a a panel from a comic strip um and this painting was sort of a you know a a, a real um important moment in the evolution of, of pop art as a uh, a break with the past as this um uh, movement that was going to take low culture just as seriously as it was going to put uh, take high culture. It was going to appropriate things very ruthlessly. It was going to uh, bring a whole bunch of clashing, uh, conflicting cultural elements together into this new uh, this new thing. And you know, Ray was at at art school and may have been familiar with the painting. I'm not sure um, that you know. I, I doubt he was thinking specifically of the painting when he when he wrote the song. But you know. The song is about nostalgia, about growing up in England, um, and uh, but it's it's working class nostalgia. It says nostalgia for a working class childhood in uh, in England and in working class uh, families. Of course, American culture was huge, and he would have seen um, Donald Duck cartoons growing up. Uh, you know, going to the the local movie theater, um, it was uh, you know low culture. It was disdained by um, a lot of the middle class people at the very same time in the '60s who were complaining about the Americanization of British culture, the homogenization of British culture, mass culture, um, Disneyfication, as we would call it today, was um, you know by the kind of middle class snobs was was fairly. Um, looked down upon but uh but here ray is, is celebrating this aspect of um american culture but it's also his own culture it's his own um his own childhood um i don't know if he's entirely celebrating i you know throughout the book i <laughs> i re remain kind of agnostic about whether he's being entirely serious or entirely um satirical in a lot of these songs and i think there is a strong element of satire in the opening track on village green um but yeah the uh the Donald Duck would not have found his way into uh, a standard inventory of Englishness if uh, the inventory was being made by a middle class person. But the fact that it's make, being made by a, uh, a working class person tells us a lot about um, about Ray uh, and the band's own perspective about their own past and about how they thought about um, the world that they were kind of inheriting after after World War Two. And and you also make the point in the book, and this is another thing that had escaped me, although I knew it on a certain level, but that working class English culture had been very attuned to African-American culture since the late 1800s. They jumped on the bandwagon of minstrelsy and blackface. They were quick adopters of ragtime uh, and the, the unfortunately named coon song genre that accompanied the ragtime period. They were early on to adopt jazz and uh, blues in the 20s, the classic blues period. So people like Ray's parents, I think, were not as shocked and put off by the way Ray and Dave adopted these black American musicians as their models. I think, I think any George Formby fan uh, who really got it got it and, and understood. So there's this kind of connection. And so I think there's not quite the oppositional sense that you get from somebody like, say, Brian Jones, who's having this sharp break with his family, who very much wants him to play Bach and, and hymns. And, you know, this jazz is going to lead you to terrible ruin. But the Davises aren't that kind of middle class and, and they're working class and, and proud of it. And 
you know, in his next album, Arthur, he attempts to chronicle the life of the working class. And this one in particular, I, I remember reading, I think it was a Rolling Stone review of this of that album at the time. And the reviewer, I want to say it was John Landau, but I could be wrong, but was very much just assuming that Ray Davis was this snide hipster who's viciously pouring acid all over the hopes and dreams of the British working classes. And that's not really at all what's going on with Arthur, is it? No, I, I think um, there's a so this coincides with his own move into a big house um, in the the outer northern suburbs of London, um, and his own kind of disillusion with that uh, that lifestyle, but um, but also a sort of recognition of um, the fact that a lot of people in his world, a lot of people in working class London, um, did aspire to living the sort of uh, lifestyle that he himself wasn't really able to appreciate, you know, the, the fully detached house, the um, the, the the large lawns, the of course the you know the indoor lavatories and all the the, the things that he goes through on the show, on the song Shangri La were um, you know it was better uh, in a lot of material ways than the old uh, inner city slums had been, and he kind of wants to simultaneously. Um, uh, appreciate the uh, the fact that it is better, the f fact that um, you know things are improving for a lot of working class people, and um, but also uh, is himself not sure that things are getting entirely better. You know, that there are certain things being lost at the same time as things are being gained. That old feeling of being connected to your neighbors. He talks about how his his new house in um, in the outer suburbs was way too quiet. Um, he couldn't think because it was too quiet uh, because there were no neighbors banging on his walls. Um, so, you know, there's this, like, this perpetual tension between, um, you know, trying to appreciate uh, the changes of post-war uh, Britain and uh, lamenting those changes at the same time. And, you know, as far as African-American culture, I think, you know, it's important to say that uh, working class working class interest in and affection for um, African-American music was not, did not coincide uh, with lack of, of racism or lack of, um, you know, with, with did not coincide with full empathy. And of course, you, you mentioned the minstrels in the 19th century, and those were uh, fully racist performances. Um, but they sort of... And the Black um, and White Minstrel Show was on TV in Britain, I think, at least until 1978, maybe into the 1980s, which is, if you've ever seen that show, it's just... Absolutely yeah, staggeringly racist. It's unbelievable that it was going yeah. on. And um, you know, what's sorry, um, what's happening at the very same time is that the inner cities, while Ray is kind of writing about Arthur and thinking about suburbia, is that um, the inner cities are uh, white people are leaving those inner cities and um, not they're not being pushed out as the later myth would later would have it, but they are um, essentially more affluent. They can afford to to move into these um, these larger houses in the suburbs, and in their wake are coming uh, people from the, the the empire, the the Commonwealth, people from the Caribbean, people from South Asia, and um, and so you know I I think there is there's a way that you can kind of listen to the music that Ray is making around this time and see it as maybe a slightly 
uncomfortable maybe nostalgia for a a white working class world that is being um that is disintegrating uh, for various reasons in his own music you know uh, ray is not blaming uh people of color for for pushing out uh, white people but there's um there's an entryway for somebody who's so disposed to look at an album like village green or arthur or some of the later stuff and to um to see that as a, a lament for a more homogenous culture. I, I think Ray and Dave would resist that interpretation themselves, but that's the thing about art is that it's open to multiple interpretations. And so it can be sort of hijacked for, uh, for less than uh, savory purposes sometimes. And let's hear one more song. And, and then I want you to, to ask you about this song and then a couple others that are on the Lola album. And this is The Money Go Round by The Kings. Robert owes half to Granville. He took half the money that was earned in some far distant land Gave back half to Larry And I end up with half of goodness knows what Can't somebody explain why things go on this way I thought they were my friends I can't believe it's me I can't believe that I'm so green And that was Money Go Round from the Lola vs. Power Man uh, And I'm forgetting the whole rest of the title but lola's album and the hit single obviously that brought the kinks back uh, commercially in both more so than the states than in britain but there are a number of songs on this that deal with the business side of the music career and we haven't talked about it when another break that ray had at the same time uh as he was exiled from america was he was very sort of precociously suing his publisher and his managers as early as 65, I think 66 is the year that he's having these legal fights. And so he's almost half a decade ahead of, of John and Paul and Mick and Keith and others who are, and uh, I guess right up there with Pete Townsend at the same time having fights over, over the rights. But he's figured out that this is not a game, that, that this is money and that there are grownups that he thought were helping him that are playing him. Talk about that a little bit and, and the way he expressed his rebellion against the constraints and perfidy of the music biz. Yeah, you know, there are songs, The Money Go, the money go Round, Top of the Pops, uh, Denmark Street um, on that album that are uh, more or less, uh, you know, direct attacks on, um, on music publishers. He has this, uh, the um, long-standing legal battle is against his publisher, Eddie Kasner, uh, who kind of owned the publishing rights to raise songs. And um, he's kind of the uh, the power man of, uh, of that song that, that he's attacking is uh, holding up as a kind of Bond villain um, uh, that'll, you know, be kind of hopefully uh, wow. taken down by the, the scrappy upstarts that populate a lot of the rest of the album. Um, the, and hence the title, which I've just remembered, Lola versus the Power Man and the Money Go Round. So. That's right. Um, so, yeah, there's um, you get the sense that by 1970, he's just fed up. Um, and, uh, and and uh, Dave, as well, with the song Rats, um, there's a, there's an anger there that hadn't been there before. Um, 
there's a uh, kind of a sense of frustration. The tracks, you know, generally with, uh, I think, by the ni- by 1970, a, a disillusion with the way things are going in Britain, um, the, you know, the, the lofty, uh, excited rhetoric of the mid-60s is uh, starting to fall apart. Um, it's becoming apparent to everybody else, while it had been apparent to Ray for years, it's becoming apparent to everybody else that the 60s were, there was something rotten at the core. Um, there's a, uh, yeah, the, sort of a, a sense of disillusionment that um, yeah, that had been there throughout with the Kinks, but is especially pronounced on these albums and, and uh, takes the form of an attack on the music industry. But you can see the music industry, the record label executives as kind of stand-ins for the broader uh, establishment in Britain that is still um, holding on to the reins, despite the fact that after 1945, it was supposed to be a kind of working class uh, society. It was supposed to be working class ruled uh, socialist world. And um, and the old people that were uh, always in power are, are still in power. And I, I want to end with uh, the last paragraph of the book proper. You've got a epilogue, but I wanted to, to end with the last thing you say. Um, the enemies that they face are the same enemies the working classes have always faced, quote, them, the establishment, the, quote, people in gray, the whole sinister panoply of false friends and big brothers. And they fight back in the way they always have, by gritting their teeth and smiling through the pain. So Mark Doyle, the book is The Kinks. Songs of the Semi-Detached. Thanks so much for coming on and discussing it. I thought you really had a lot of interesting things to say about one of my favorite bands. Thanks, it's been fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Matt Brennan to discuss how jazz and rock became seen as two distinct, unrelated musical genres and why that didn't have to be the case. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.